You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in and I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and then go visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The final book of C.S. Lewis's famous uh, Chronicles of Narnia series that I suppose many of you have probably read, if not, good year to do so. Uh, The final book is called The Last Battle. And without spoiling anything, it's in the title. I could say there's a last battle in it that ends the old world of Narnia that is then created anew. And in this last book, C.S. Lewis is closely following the biblical teachings that we've been looking at actually for the last few weeks here in Matthew 24 and 25. Namely, that there is a time coming when the Lord Jesus who ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection is going to return to the earth. And when this happens, the world as we know it will be transformed into what the Bible calls a new creation. Now, in Lewis's version, there's a scene that happens near the end of the book, and I reread it this week, that I have never been able to forget since I first read it decades ago. In it, Aslan, this, the great lion who represents Christ, he's standing in front of the door into the new world, and every single conscious creature, centaurs and unicorns and mice and humans and everybody, everybody is streaming towards him. And when they do, they see Aslan face to face, eye to eye, and one of two things happens. 
One group of people become dumb and lose their humanity, lose their consciousness and go off to the left. And the other's faces become filled with joy and love and they stream off to Aslan's right. And we call this the great separation, the final dividing of all of humanity into two groups that will occur when Jesus returns. And as you can probably guess, Lewis's imaginative version of this moment is based on the text that we have before us today from Matthew 25. The image is a little different, the details are a little different, but the final outcome is the same, that there is a day coming when all of humanity, and that includes me, and that includes you, will stand before God in complete honesty, no hiding, followed by a great separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now that's intense, I realize, and it's uncomfortable even. This is one of those teachings of the Bible that we might want to avoid, actually, and try not to think about. But being a Christian means being a follower of Jesus in its entirety, all that he taught and all that he modeled for us. We can't do like Thomas Jefferson did and just cut out, physically cut out the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable or that we don't like. And as much as we might want to ignore this and avoid it, we need to open our hearts and listen. I do believe God has a life-giving word for us from this text today. So I'm just going to pause, pray once more, and then we'll turn to the text and see what Jesus is teaching us. Let me pray for us. God, I pause and gladly thank you for Holy Scripture again, that we're not just making things up today. We're not just trying to build our lives on the our own foolish thoughts, but we want to learn from you, God. And so please speak, open scripture to us, open us to the scriptures and attend to us, God, fill us with the spirit so that we can become more like you, full of goodness and wisdom and truth and grace and beauty. So fill us with your spirit, we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, it'd be great if you could turn to Matthew chapter 25. We'll also have the words on the screen that you have on your phone or a physical Bible. Here's a good Bible trivia question to stump your friends with or use on a hot dinner date if that's what you want to do with Bible trivia, whatever you want to do. And here it is. According to Matthew, what's the very last thing that Jesus publicly taught? What's the very last thing? What is the final image or instruction that Jesus uses to conclude his three-year-long teaching ministry? What does he think is the most important thing to say to conclude his teaching? Well, it's right here in our text. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, of all the things he said, this is the last thing he's going to say publicly. He's gonna say a few other things we'll see next week at the Last Supper. He's gonna teach a few other things, but for the most part, this is the final moment of what Jesus says after all the three years of his teaching ministry. So let's Let's pick it up again. It must be very important in verse 31. It says, when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
Now, what Jesus is saying here is actually the conclusion to a long discussion that goes way back to the beginning of chapter 24, because throughout chapters 24 and 25, we've been exhorted to live faithfully and wisely because of the reality that God's kingdom is actually going to come from heaven to earth. None of us knows when this is going to be, so the exhortation to us is to live faithfully now. And all of this teaching concludes with these verses. It's not, it's not a parable, he had some parables before this, this is it, but he does use an illustration, an illustration of a shepherd from the ancient world to say the very last thing he wants to say to us. And the image he uses of the, of the sheep and the goats being separated was a common experience in the ancient world. Shepherds typically herded their sheep and goats together. It's actually good agricultural land management to do so because the diets of, the, of sheep and goats are very different. And, and as someone instructed me after the first service, goats are much smarter than sheep. And so they actually kind of help the whole herd. So it made sense to keep them together. But at night, what the shepherd would do, would you, you needed to separate the sheep and the goats apart from each other, usually into different caves or different areas, because number of reasons. Again, I'm not a goat expert, but in my opinion, goats are crazy and wild. And a lot of what you want to avoid, I think at least is what we've got in this picture here, the kind of crazy thing goats do, like standing on sheep's backs. And if you, after this afternoon, Google crazy thing goats do and crazy things goats do, and you will see there's lots of crazy stuff. So that's probably part of the reason why they did. But I understand also it's so they won't injure each other because they are very different kinds of animals. So Jesus uses this common practice of separating sheep and goats to refer to something that is really going to happen at the end when he says, the son of man comes in his glory. Who's that? Well, the son of man is what Jesus usually uses to describe himself in the gospels. The son of man emphasizes that he is a true human, but it also emphasizes from the book of Daniel chapter seven, that there is this person who is separate from the ancient today, separate from the Father God, but whom all the nations of the world will give all honor because he is, he is worthy of the same praise that God is. So this is how Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. And back in Matthew chapter 17, three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, they got to see just a little glimpse of what Jesus is talking about here and what we call the transfiguration. They got to see a little glimpse of what it was like for what it will be like for Jesus to be revealed in his glory. But as it is in his own day, he's humble, lowly, even willing to be humiliated and mocked and betrayed and tortured and then killed. But there is a day coming, Jesus says, when he will appear to all the world in all his full glory. He will be revealed for who he truly is, not a lowly traveling peasant wonder worker, but the God-man and king of the whole world, surrounded by powerful angels such that every pair of knees in the world can do nothing but bow down. And when that day comes, Jesus says, this is going to trigger an effect in the world for all of humanity that we can call the great separation. All the people of the world will be divided into two groups, one on his left and one on his, on his right. The sheep and the goats, the right and the left, are the only two destinies that can await humanity. Look at verse 34 again. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
So those aligned with Jesus at the great separation, the sheep, they are part of God's family now. They receive this rich inheritance, blessings, rewards, favor, joy, shalom, peace, relationships, all that we long for. This is the picture of God's kingdom, the everlasting reign of joy when the world is actually set to right finally. All evil is vanquished, all pain is removed, all loss is restored, every tear is wiped away and replaced with deep and resonant joy. All fears are forever removed. All sin and its consequences are destroyed. All darkness is unmade. This is what we're made for. The reason that sounds good, even if, you, if your heart is covered with cynicism, the reason that sounds good is because this is what you were made for. You long for that. You feel in your body and your heart the brokenness of this world. But this is the end game, the great hope of the Christian faith that God is actually going to restore the world to right. And for those who are aligned with him, it will be an entering into joy. But there is another possibility, and it's what we see in verse 41, those who are not aligned with Jesus, it says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the opposite of what we're longing for. This is the opposite of what we're designed for, the opposite of what we want, the separation from God. There could be no starker contrast in Jesus' teachings. And when I read this text, there are a couple of questions that have have always been in my mind that I want to just raise for you and help you understand. And here's the first one. What then, there's clearly a separation. What's the basis of this separation of the sheep and the goats? Now, I know most of us don't have much personal experience with sheep and goats, but even so whether we do or not, I bet for most of us, we kind of think of sheep positively and goats negatively. And maybe this, this teaching from Jesus is part of the reason why. As a city boy, I must confess that I don't really like goats. They scare me. I've seen enough YouTube videos again. They seem kind of wild and out of control. They kind of look satanic to me. I never order goat tandoori at Shalimar, um, although I'm sure it's, it's very good. And I, somebody after the first service already rebuked me for not eating goat tandoori. But I, I, I know a lot of cultures eat goat. I'm sure it's on me. It's my fault. But I just confess I'm not a big fan of goats. But from what I've come to understand, goats are actually really good animals to own. They reproduce much more quickly than sheep do. They're much more intelligent than sheep. They produce way more milk than sheep do wool. As I said, they're not picky eaters, so they're much easier to take care of. In today's terminology, we might say that goats are the goat. They are the greatest of all times of animals. So contrary to what we tend to think, the point of Jesus' illustration is not that sheep are somehow obviously or inherently good and goats are obviously or inherently bad, because in the ancient world, sheep and goats were both greatly valued. This leads us to the question, what is the basis then of this separation? Well, look with me again at verses 34 and to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. 
I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. It's very clear that that's the basis of who the sheep and, the, and the, who the goats are. But I think we need to be honest and admit that especially if you've been around church for a while, this is an unexpected answer. This seems like a very odd thing for Jesus to say. It's even confusing. I mean, after all, the, the typical Christian answer to the question of how do you enter eternal life in the kingdom is never just do a bunch of good things. But at first glance, this seems to be what these verses are saying. To say that we enter the kingdom, that those who enter the kingdom are those who just do good deeds is actually the opposite of what the Bible says about our relationship with God. The Bible's clear that we are dead. We're disconnected from God because of our sins. And it's God's initiative to make us alive and grant us faith. And it's this believing, trusting faith that connects us with Christ and, and secures for us forgiveness of sins and our, and our salvation and gives us spirit to transform us. All that's by faith, the scriptures say. This is not something that I get by just being good to people. I think one of the best summaries of this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I hope you're familiar with these verses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. <laughs> so what in the world is Jesus teaching us here? It's clear again that the basis of the separation of the sheep and the goats is actually the activities of feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, clothing the, ne the needy, caring for the sick, visiting those who are in prison. And if you look at verse 42, that's the basis for those who are not, do not enter. Verse 42 says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. So how in the world does that fit into our understanding that it is faith, not our own works that save us. Well, Jesus here is talking once again about something that he's been talking about all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, what is called the necessity of actually being righteous. Notice in verse 37, and again in verse 46, that the, the sheep are called the righteous ones. That's language that is actually all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And the question is, who are the righteous ones? These are the followers of Jesus. You may recall, back in the Sermon on the Mount, in 520, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the same thing here. But we must realize how this works out in real life. The righteous ones are called this, not because they've earned their salvation by their own merit, not because they never sin, not because they're extra super holy, but they're called this because they are the people who are following Jesus imperfectly, but wholeheartedly. Let me say that again. The righteous ones in the gospels are the disciples who are following Jesus very imperfectly, but wholeheartedly. Think of the disciples, Peter, like, people like Peter and James and John and Andrew and Thomas. They are very imperfect people, yet they're called the righteous ones. They bicker with each other. They fight about who's more important than each other. They're jealous. They have great moments of faith, and they also have these moments of ab abject failure. Just right after this, when Jesus is going to be betrayed, 
right before this, he's in a garden and he asks them to come and pray with him and they fall asleep. And then when he's betrayed, they all abandon him out of fear of getting arrested themselves. They all flee. These are the disciples that are called the righteous ones. What makes them and what makes us righteous is not that we're always perfect or always that we do what's right or that we're extra super holy, but that imperfectly and whole, but wholeheartedly we are seeking to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not that you're earning your salvation, but that you are seeking the Lord imperfectly, but with a whole heart. You see, the righteous ones who enter the kingdom, they're not earning their inheritance by doing these philanthropic deeds as if God is this big sky accountant who's got these two ledgers, good deeds and bad deeds. That's not how the Bible depicts God at all. Rather, the righteous ones in Matthew is a description of the disciples, the ones who have faith, even if it's mustard seed-sized faith, faith to actually entrust themselves to follow Jesus to give up their lives to follow in his ways. You see, you and I can so easily, this is a human tendency to, to fall off the knife edge of this beautiful truth on either side. On the one side, we can see our righteousness as this math problem or this accounting issue that if we do enough good things, we'll earn God's favor. But on the other side, we can also fall off and, and think that, that doing good is irrelevant because it does matter because doing good shows that you have the faith that you're following Jesus. The knife edge of the truth is that the righteous ones in the world, according to Jesus, are those who are seeking him imperfectly, not earning their favor, but being disciples of him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that I just quoted a second ago. Do you know what Ephesians 2, 10 says? It says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to do. And what are those good works? When you read through Matthew and you look at our text today, those good works largely look like caring for those in need. If you look through Matthew, you'll see this is what Jesus himself does. He feeds multitudes in the wilderness. He heals and restores people in need. He cares for those who are broken. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be engaged in these kind of works in the world. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, when he's in conflict with the Pharisees, how he contrasts his way with the Pharisees. Look at 23, 23. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a 10th of your spices. They're calculating. They're calculating what they need to do to be right with God. You give a 10th of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. And what are they? Justice, that is doing what is right, mercy, and faith or faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so too here in Jesus' teachings, the righteous ones are the ones who show mercy to those in need. This is not earning salvation. This is not the opposite of faith. This is what faith looks like. Showing mercy, helping others is the fruit that comes from the root of faith. The faithful tree produces the fruit of mercy. Not perfectly, not every day of the year. We're sinful, we're broken, we make mistakes, we don't do what we should do, but still this is what faith produces, works of mercy. So it makes sense. It makes sense here in the very last teaching of Jesus that once again he would emphasize 
that disciples' lives, the people who are following in his own ways, their lives are marked by acts of service and mercy to those in need. This is precisely what faith looks like. Do you remember what Jesus' own brother later wrote, the Apostle James? Here's what he said in chapter one of his letter. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself polluted from the world. And he goes on in chapter two, and listen how, how similar this sounds to what we're just reading in Matthew. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Such, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well-fed, blessings to you, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's not real faith, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, Faith and mercy and works of mercy are not opposites. Works of mercy are, the, are one of the most obvious fruits that we do have faith in Jesus. I think there's a second question this text raises for me, and I'll deal with this one much more briefly, and that's this. Who are then these least of these that he talks about? Did you notice one of the kind of odd things about this story is that when the king is interacting with the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats, they're actually surprised at what he says. Look at verse 37 again. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the goats say the same thing in verse 44. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Jesus the king said that the sheep, the righteous ones, are the ones who had clothed him, but they don't remember doing these things. So they're, they're perplexed by this. And then look at verse 40 is his answer. The king replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And that's the second question. Who are these least of these? And the answer is Jesus's own people. Earlier in Matthew, we've seen several times that he's defined the least of these as his own people, and he does so here again. And so simply put, when we engage in helping other Christians in need, Jesus says, we're actually serving God himself. This is because Christians in the world are actually Jesus' body. And so when we serve other Christians, Jesus says, I take that personally, that is serving me, and that's beautiful and good. But what I just said might cause one of two reactions in you. On the one side, you might think, hey, that sounds kind of snooty and selfish. What about the poor in general? Or on the other side, you might be thinking, oh, good. I don't have to deal with those poor and needy people out in the world. I can just stay comfortable here in church service. Well, if either of those things are what are coming up for you, I want to challenge you today in this way. 
we must never forget that God cares about all of his creatures because they all, all humans bear his image. Even those people that scare you, even those people who you think, well, the mess they're in is because they, they made a bunch of bad choices. Remember what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, that God the Father causes his son and rain to shine on and bless all the people in the world, the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, and we're to do the same. And we see that throughout Jesus' ministry, this is what he does as well. When he cares for the poor and the hungry and the naked, he doesn't have a stipulation that everybody is a disciple. We believe in common grace. Jesus regularly healed people without having necessarily a theological discussion with them. He's moved to compassion when he saw people and he fed the multitudes and multiplied bread because they were hungry, not because they had come to an altar call or something. And you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus defines the neighbor, who's your neighbor, anyone that God puts in your path. So this you know, working on the least of these doesn't mean that God doesn't also care for the world and that we shouldn't as well. And I think the Apostle Paul sums up this complex truth in a very beautiful way in Galatians 6, 10, when he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those belonging to the family of believers especially belonging to the household of faith, because when we do so, we're actually serving Christ, but not only belonging to those of the household of faith. This, I think, is a great summary of how we hold together the idea of common grace, that God cares about all creatures, and that he is exhorting us to live in service toward one another in the church. To be a follower of Jesus is to be one who engages in acts of mercy for anyone whom God puts in your path, but especially giving yourself to serve other members of the body of Christ in need. So let's get practical. How do we respond to this last teaching of Jesus? Well, I have to confess, I feel very challenged by this. I, as I thought about this week and as I, as I talked to my wife, I, I think we both felt like, I'll just speak for myself here, I don't know that I could say that my life is greatly marked by acts of mercy and service towards others. I don't know that I could say, and I, and I feel very challenged and convicted by this. Maybe that's where you are today as well. No matter where you are, you can get in the game by supporting our church ministries and other ministries we have connections to. Once we get back to the Chestnut Street Y and tutoring children, that is a great way you can get involved once VBS gets up running and the outreach that that is to people in the church and beyond, affordable Christmas we just had, which is amazing. S2 could always use more help, giving yourself to invest in young people. You can, you can love and support ministers on college campuses like UofL and other, and, and more broadly, missionaries. You can give to our benevolence fund. You can be involved in adoption and foster care if that's what God leads you to. Amazing acts of mercy that those are. We have ministries like Beside You for Life and Speak for the Unborn. And there's international ministries that help Christians in need throughout the world, Voice of the Martyrs, Compassion International, prison ministries. Those are all great. And I know that when you and I think about ministries, probably the first thing we think about is giving money. And that's good. Ministries need money. Churches need money. That's a good thing. Definitely give money. But today, 
I want to push you more deeply than your bank accounts and your wallets. Because money is great and giving money is really good, but, but I think a lot of times giving money is a way that we can actually feel better about ourselves and still keep kind of arm's length from the mess of messy people and relationships. And if you have a lot of money, if God's blessed you with a lot of money, that's wonderful and I would encourage you to be a good steward of that. But don't be content to just give money and not be involved personally. And if you don't have a lot of extra money, which is probably where most people are, you don't have to feel guilty and shame that you can't provide this large amount of funds for other people. But all of us can give of ourselves. We can give something more valuable and more personal than our money. We can give of our time and our energy and our calendars. And I know it's very difficult during COVID to do a lot of the things that we will get back up and running again soon, but we can all still look for little ways that we can help those in need near or far. Is there something you could do this week for one of your neighbors? Are you aware of a brother or sister in Christ who has some need that maybe you don't want to get involved because it's kind of messy, or maybe you just don't even know and you just need to ask them? Or here's something, you want to pray a very dangerous prayer? Pray, God, would you lead me this week to some situation where I can help someone in need? <laughs> That's a dangerous prayer, because I guarantee you, if you pray that prayer, it's going to happen, right? I recently re-watched the uh, Pixar movie WALL-E with one of my kids, and by, I mean, watch, it's what I typically mean. I watched 15 minutes, fell asleep, and woke back up at the end, which is what all watching things seems to be for me at this age. But I know what happens in the movie. <clears throat> in this dystopian future, you have all these humans who have left the planet, and they're floating in the heavens, lumpy and luxurious, and living meaningless lives. While back on the earth, you have this lowly character, Wally, who's engaged day in and day out in working and helping and cleaning and organizing in the mess of earthly life. And here's what struck me about that. Who has the better life? <laughs> All the world would tell us that the, the luxurious, carefree life up in the heavens is the better life. But I think the movie does a great job of showing that Wally, this faithful little robot worker, in the midst of his labors, finds so much joy because he's constantly finding treasures in the midst of being involved in the mess of earth. What a great picture for you and me. That we can give ourselves to be involved in the mess of actually helping people and in the midst of that, that's where the treasure is found, treasure now and for eternity. You know, there are lots of things a church could be known for, lots of good things, good preaching, great music, fancy buildings, a congregation that is above average intelligence and, and attractiveness. All these, all these things are great. But let's be a church that's known for being a place of acts of service and mercy to those in need. That would be a great thing to be known as. 
And that's actually what Jesus teaches in his last teaching to us, is saying this is what it looks like to be my followers in the messy earth, to be people who are giving mercy and grace to others. And when Jesus returns in all his glory and separates the sheep from the goats, as we stay engaged in this merciful work in the world, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy and inheritance I have for you. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.